For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Let us pray. Jesus, we pray for our time as we go into uh, the, the reading of your word, the preaching of your word. Would you give us hearts, Lord, to receive you? Give, you, give us ears to hear what you have to speak to us. Lord, I pray the gospel in all of its power and glory. Lord, can just ignite and renew our hearts as we sit and hear from your word this morning. Lord, I pray for those who are sick and, and suffering, Lord, in our, in our body. I know there are, are many right now, Lord, we, we pray for um, healing on their bodies, uh, courage and perseverance to face the, tri- the trials and difficulties they are facing, Lord. Um, I pray for the hearts of people in our church, that they may grow to love you and to desire you and to seek you and long for you with all of their heart, Lord. Any sin that is present in the hearts of your people this morning in this room that is keeping that from happening, Lord, would you flush it out and bring it to the surface that they may face it, confess and repent of it, Lord, to others and to you, that they may overcome that, Lord, for you have overcome sin and death and conquered it through your resurrection. So we love you this morning. Um, be with us as we continue our worship service. We pray this in your name. Amen. 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 Before we go to the sermon, um, we have some pictures. My name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't got a chance to, to meet you yet. And uh, as uh, Pastor Eric mentioned earlier, we're in the process of planting a new church. This church is in Brick, uh, right down the street. And um, we should have some pictures. Is there pictures up from last week? Maybe in Purpose Center. There we go. So we had uh, our first kind of uh, official uh, meeting last Sunday night at 4 o'clock. And we had close to about 40 people come out. Some of you came out just in support of us. And um, yeah, it's pretty cool, right? And so um, it was really awesome. We, uh, you know, brought bread together. We uh, sung some songs together. And it was a, uh, it was a really fantastic time. And, um, and, yeah, so as we're continuing this, I want to share just a quick uh, two or three minutes of um, kind of a testimony and some, some, some vision things that are going on in my heart and in our hearts as a pastoral staff. As I've been helping to lead this new church planning venture, I've been studying a lot of church history, especially uh, spiritual awakenings. In uh, revivals in our own country uh, throughout its history. What I mean by spiritual awakenings is just a, a very, um, uh, in a short amount of time, a lot of people being revived in their faith and love for Jesus and that extending out into evangelism and, and, and mercy ministries and, and justice ministries and just the, um, the church expanding in a very quick, kind of short amount of time to have broad influence over a culture and the city that it's in. And there are certain uh, uh, things that are kind of shared in all of these spiritual renewal awakening events that um, as a staff and at this church plant, I've been, uh, we've been praying and thinking, how can we cultivate an environment for these things to uh, kind of you know, fa- be fanned into flame? And the, it, they're pretty basic things. There's nothing um, you know, magical about this. It's not a formula. This is just kind of Christianity 101. The first thing that's taken place in these 
um, these kind of spiritual renewals and revivals and awakenings in our country's history in the Christian church has been gospel preaching, preaching about Jesus Christ. If you've been coming here, I know that that's our sort of heart and our, our, our heartbeat here is preaching the good news of Jesus to those young in their faith and to those who have been a Christian for decades. We always must go back to the gospel. Small group meetings where Christians met together for prayer, confession of sin, talking about Jesus to one another, talking about the news of what was happening in other parts of the church around them. Gospel conversations and honest, truthful conversations about the life, about life was at the center of these, and prayer was the undergirding kind of river beneath these meetings. And all these um, things led to three things, mass evangelism, national and international mercy ministries to the poor and justice ministries to local and broader cultural um, kind of evils that needed to be faced. And this is why we are planting this church. While these things tend to find themselves happening on small scales at church plants, uh, we're not just talking about this happening at Redeemer Brick. The reason why we want to be a church that plants churches and wants to eventually start a regional network of churches is that this is taking place in all of the Redeemer fellowships, that we may all experience continual spiritual renewal leading to mass evangelism and ministries to those who are in great need in our communities. And so continue to pray for Redeemer Brick, that our church can grow by Christians being renewed by the gospel, living on mission, growing by conversion growth, but also be praying for Thomas River. These are the things that also are the heartbeat of this church. And so as one church is growing by those means, pray that this church can even grow uh, even more so here in Thomas River. So um, if you live in Brick, and I know some of you have expressed some interest, you know, we'll be meeting Sunday nights, 4 o'clock, um, over off of Van Zyl Road at the Orthodox Church of the Annunciation. Any questions about the church plant, uh, come talk to me. And at this point, I'm going to hand it over to Pastor Eric. Have a seat. Could you give us, um, maybe for any of the note takers out there, just uh, one practical thing they could be praying for you and for Redeemer Brick for, and I'll take that to prayer before we go into the Word. Yeah, just uh, we've had some opportunities. Um, somebody in our in our core has, uh, you can be praying for this especially. Um, she has come into contact with a, um, it's kind of a boarding house in one of the towns um, right close to us in Brick full of, I don't know, 20 or 30 little uh, rooms and apartments full of people who were, I don't know, just really struggling people that are um, kind of down and out, don't have a lot of family, very poor, don't have any kind of relationships, and she was able to go there. She doesn't know that I know this, but I was told. She went there and was able just to minister to them, eating cookies with them and hanging out with them, and we were really praying that we can get in there and be able to have Bible studies with them, minister to them and pour into them as a church. And so we're really praying for that. So please join us um, in that prayer. So. All right. Yeah. And before I go to prayer for that, I stay up here. Um, also want to just let you guys know Daniel's been given the chaplaincy of a nursing home in Brick. So uh, there's just been some really neat opportunities for Redeemer Brick. And uh, proud of this guy. I'm going to pray for you. God, thank you that we get to be a part of church planting, Lord. Um, God, that we get to... Uh, Take people that we love and see them um, grow here, move on, and continue with your gospel and your mission to the surrounding towns, Lord. God, I pray that these guys would be faithful missionaries. And Lord, I pray for the opportunities that Daniel just brought up with this nursing home and um, with this boarding house. 
God, I thank you that you came to a bunch of misfits, Lord, and you showed yourself not to stained glass saints, Lord, but uh, you're the physician who came for the sick. So I pray that they would take on that mission and own it faithfully and joyfully. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you, brother. All right. Well, we are entering into a new series today called Belonging. And in doing so, we're going to be discussing one of the most basic human needs out there. I'm really excited. I I like to study ahead of time. We've got our next new series really mapped out. We're going to be doing five weeks on this belonging series. And then we're going to be starting Colossians before we go into Easter. And uh, God is just so good. I started mapping that out and that beautiful passage about how he took the lists considering all of the decrees against you and he nailed it to the cross, putting it to open shame. It just so happens, right, that that's going to be landed on on Easter. What a perfect Easter text. And then the weeks right after are going to be, hey, you are not your own anymore. You, You... Put off the old self. Put on the new self. What a great, great concept after talking about the resurrected self and the resurrected Christ. And even the passage in Colossians 4 or at the end of Colossians 3 where it talks about mothers and fathers just so happened to fall on uh, Mother's Day. Like it was so cool as I started to map this out. So I'm really excited to start opening the word with you guys over the next few weeks. And this series called Belonging I hope that you're able to see what I'm able to uh, see in this and hopefully able to convey to you that we are talking about one of the most basic human needs that you could have. Everybody needs to feel like they belong somewhere. It is innate to what it means to be a human. We were created to be relational beings. None of us was created to be an island unto themselves. Individualism is not God's highest ideal. Autonomy is not something that is held biblically high like we hold it culturally high. Belonging and community are things that are just from cover to cover throughout the Bible. You'll even hear sometimes the triune God when he speaks He'll use plural pronouns, like we. Uh, Even God existed from eternity past in a communal relationship with himself. So belonging was something that's always just been built into our very fabric. And as I pondered this idea of belonging, I almost felt like whatever Solomon must have felt like before he wrote Ecclesiastes, where he's just looking around and seeing all of these different realities, but then concluding as he looks for all these realities that everybody's sort of looking for the same thing, but just looking for it in different avenues. In Ecclesiastes, you see people looking for pleasure through all of these different avenues, and they're looking at, at sex and strong drink and all of these things that can just anesthetize us to the world. And then he says in chapter 12, the conclusion when all has been sought to seek God, fear him, all else is window dressing, essentially. And uh, I kind of felt the same thing. You look at around, and you look at what all people do, and it sort of all comes back to this idea of belonging. So as I pondered this, I started to think about the people that try their hardest to look like they don't care about belonging. I don't know if any of you remember, um, or if you've ever hung out over at the mall, but I remember there used to be this 
just posse of kids there. I don't go to the mall so much anymore because of Amazon and other things of the like, but there always used to be this group of young people where they'd have like the big green Liberty Spike mohawks and the chain in their nose that connects with a chain to their eyebrow that connects to their wallet chain. You know what I'm talking about? And it's, do your thing, man. I'm not making fun. Like, you're talking to a guy that I used to have like dreadlocks down in here and a beard like this and I didn't shower for months, so I'm not going to judge anybody, but I, at least when I looked like that, I wasn't shocked when people would stare at me. You know, like I remember walking into a KFC in Kentucky and they actually brought all the help out of the back saying like, you got to see this thing. And, and, uh, this is before digital cameras, so when I tell you that they wanted to get their picture taken to me, we're talking like wine, 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 click, like, it was, it, it was bizarre, but I knew what they were looking at. I knew that, you know, me going to Kentucky was a sight for sore eyes, but I remember seeing these posses of kids walking around the mall, you get the second glance, but then you kind of get your tractor beam. Like, wow, man, what happens if you pull that wallet chain and it just rips that thing out of your nose? And, and what do you get the longer you look and you ponder things like that? You get the, what are you looking at? And I always wondered, like, do you really not know what I'm looking at? <laughs> you have chains tied to everything on your body and your hair is green and sticks out. You know exactly what I'm looking at. You got ready today when you left the house for the purpose that I would look at you. It, it, you might not realize it, but you ever notice that as much as that person tries to look like they don't care, that usually they travel in a pack full of people who similarly try just as hard to look like they don't care. I remember, I, I had a mohawk for a little bit, and when you have those Liberty Spikes, I never had one that cool, but it, it would take you quite a while to put up your quaff in such a way where I'm gonna just spend two hours this morning looking like I don't care whatsoever. Like, that's just the picture of caring. Be with these other groups of people that would try just as hard to look like they don't care. And their commonality would be this bond of all of us just work so hard to collectively show that we don't care. Why is that? It's pretty simple, really. They do care. Belonging matters. Ironically, belonging may matter even more to the person who tries to prove that they don't care about belonging than it does to people that understand that they need belonging. They've just defined who they care about belonging to a little bit more precisely than most of the world would. They belong to a group who define themselves by the identity of commonly not belonging. So mutually not belonging becomes their new belonging. And it's okay as long as they mutually don't belong together with a group of people that they belong to, right? Um, they don't want to be a part of what they deem to be mainstream culture, whatever that term even means today, and may find their identity in rebelling against what others do that they see as, oh man, look at these sheeple and all that they do to try Long. But even this creates a culture unto itself, and it's mutually agreed upon terms of what belonging looks like. This is actually the definition of a subculture or a counterculture. But think of it like this. This is really neat as I try to wrap my mind around it. 
even a subculture or a counterculture, which define themselves by what they do not belong to, are all created around the common idea of belonging to something other than mainstream culture. So I'm trying to say, put it a little bit more simply, so that I'm not just speaking in riddles up here the whole time. One person with an idea is not a subculture. One person with thoughts is not a counterculture. In order to create a culture, by definition, you have to define that culture by what you belong to or what you don't belong to. Even if it's a subculture that defines itself by what you don't belong to. You have to have others who agree with you in what they don't belong to, creating the basis for your subculture, and the basis of that being the idea of belonging to a similar group of non-belongers. That makes sense to anybody so far? It makes sense to me. So maybe we'll bring you along for the ride somewhere and not just my musings. But you just can't get around the idea of belonging, is my point. I also contemplated men of a different generation, because maybe you're thinking, like, I don't really get the whole, like, green hair, chain wallet, trying to be as radical as possible. So I contemplated men from the generation of my grandfather. On the surface, he looked like a man that didn't put a big print on belonging. When you sat and talked with him for any more than five or ten minutes, and I know that many of you did before he passed on, you'd hear stories about different men and women at the VFW. People that I've never even heard of were discussed as if I knew them my whole life. Why? Because those were the people that gave a man a sense of belonging. We would talk about his time at war in Korea. And like most men who have seen the atrocities of war, he never wanted to talk about the war itself, right? When you hear the term war stories, usually war stories are shared most by people who have not been to war. He didn't talk about the battles. He talked about the men that he served with in a way that was so fresh that you wouldn't think that it was 50 years ago that this boy got sent to Korea to become a man. Why? Because those PA people created the baseline of what belonging meant, and that stuck with him through the rest of his life. As I put together this series, I was reminded of some words that a church planter told me when I was on a mission trip to England. He said that every person that's ever been created is created with two basic needs. Maslow might not agree with these two basic needs, but I would say these are higher than Maslow's hierarchy. The need to worship and the need to fellowship. And then he went on to tell me with the precision of a brilliant missiologist, the challenges of reaching a culture where both of these needs are met where they gather to see their local football, soccer teams at the local pub. They have their need for fellowship met as they gather together over what they worship. So in an essence, they've created a church, so they don't see their need for church. So as a missionary, his difficulty was to crack through and help them to see why church was something that they needed to belong to. I started to think about Christian relationships. All the ministries and relationships that have gone south, about relationships that were both strong and weak, and often the way that we define our broken relationships is being severed from something that we once felt that we belonged to. Think back to the relationships that make you wince the most when you think about them. And isn't that the thing that makes you wince? I felt like I belonged to this. 
through the decisions that were utterly sinful or I didn't understand, this was cut off. Now I no longer feel like I belong to something where I once derived meaning, and now there is sadness, pain, bitterness when I look back on that relationship. Or you think back to the opposite side of the coin. Your most comfortable relationships are often defined by the people that you feel like you belong to the easiest without having to put all that much work to feel like you fit in or you truly belong. Why is one relationship that we look back to as something that makes us wince and the other relationship is something that gives us comfort because we no longer have to feel like the proverbial square peg in a round hole? And it comes back to this idea of belonging. So why do people care about belonging so much? Because we are created to care about belonging. We're about to get into our scripture, but one of the things we use as a teaching tool for our kids our catechisms, and I just wanted to give, uh, I know that we just read one in our time of worship. When I got saved, I thought catechism was, uh, was like a dirty word that just meant dead religion, because um, all I knew is of catechism was the different kids that used to go to CCD growing up, and you would ask them, hey, what do, you, do you enjoy that? No, it's just something where I have to give up something every Lent and pretend that I'm not doing it so that God will be happy with me. And they never really enjoyed this idea of catechism. So for me, I thought catechism was associated with dead religion. It is not. Catechism just means we're taking basic truths and teaching them in a way where somebody can become grounded in them and understand them through repetition. So a question that we ask in the New City Catechism is what is our only hope in life and in death? And that's that we are not our own, but we belong body and soul, both life and death, to God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That was taken from what you guys just read earlier during the time of worship. That's an abridgment of the Heidelberg Catechism. What's your only comfort in life and death? And I'm not my own, but belong body and soul, both life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, nor can a hair fall from my head, indeed all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, his Holy Spirit, he also reassures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. These statements show and observe what I was basically saying, you can see just by watching. We find our identity in terms of belonging. And said another way, we find our identity in terms of who we belong to. But these statements are further confirmed by Scripture. I would ask that you would turn to Romans 14. We find our identity in terms of our belonging, and we find a better understanding of our sense of belonging when we understand who we belong to. Two. So our first message in this series, introduction over, is going to be looking at the fact that we are not our own, but we belong to God. In the first six verses of chapter 14, it's going to show us something pretty neat about belonging to Jesus, and that's that Jesus takes all kinds of misfits. Look with me at the first six verses. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Do not quarrel over opinions. But do not quarrel over opinions. But do not quarrel over opinions. Do not quarrel over opinions. Sorry, I got stuck for a second. 
there. Do not quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while other people are vegetarians. Let, <laughs> let us not... I think I just did the opposite of what verse 3 is about to tell me to do. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, but the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed them. For who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? For who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Who are you? <laughs> it is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems them all alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in the honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. For while the one abstains, abstains in the honor to the Lord and gives thanks to God. So this passage is talking about a topic known as Christian liberty. It's saying that different people in their conscience, it's not talking about things that the Bible clearly spells out as right or wrong. These are issues of conscience, issues where people are going to have a different set of convictions, often from their upbringing, from past struggles that they had. It's using eating here in a similar passage in 1 Corinthians, a parallel passage. It uses alcohol, um, it uses meat sacrifice to idols, and it's saying, look, you have these convictions, but these convictions are not a scriptural thing. These are not a point of division. One of you are going to see things this way. One of you are going to see things this way. One of you are going to be able to engage in liberties that you feel are okay. Scripture does not clearly say do not. You're not sinning in doing so, but another one, if you were to engage in this, you would be going against conscience, and therefore it is not profitable. Stop having culture wars over things that are not scriptural, is the point of this. So many of the things that people argue and separate about in churches are not even things that have biblical precedent. Well, what do you mean you want to decorate the church to look like this? What do you mean the website says this? Why are you naming this this? And these aren't even things that we can even point the chapter and verse and say, thus saith the Lord, you should care about this as much as you do. And ironically, it usually leads to not caring about the things that you should as much as you should when you divide over these things. This passage is a big reason why it makes me nervous when Christians choose to separate themselves based on subculture within the church. And when I see, like, I'm a surfer, so I'm only going to hang out with other surfers. I'm an alcoholic. I can only understand other alcoholics, and other alcoholics be the only ones that understand me. I used to struggle with sexual addiction, so now I'm with people who struggle with pornography, but nobody else would understand me. Where in the Bible do you ever see come together and find your identity in your common sin? Where? I could show you everywhere where it says, come together and find your identity in your common Savior. I could show you everywhere it says to find your identity in your common salvation and what he has done to free you from your sin. But nowhere does it say, hey church, I know that you all meet, but then during the week just make sure you segregate and let the locus of your meeting be the sin that I saved you from and only get together and discuss those things. We wonder why people have such whacked views on sanctification. People can find their sense of belonging 
by belonging to a group of people who belong to Jesus plus something else. Listen to that. That's not the same as belonging to Jesus. Finding your identity in a group of people who find their identity in belonging to Jesus, you're talking about a second reduction. You're not going right to the main source, man. You don't have to find your identity in people who find their identity in people who find their identity. It becomes inception. It's an infinite regress. You could go straight to the head guy in charge. There's no mediator between God and man except the man Christ Jesus. God casts a wide blanket when it comes to belonging. God's view of the church is that there is nobody that's too much of a misfit to belong because you're all a bunch of misfits. God came here to the island of misfit toys so that he could save a Charlie in a box, a pistol that shoots jelly, the elephant with pink spots, and for you to delude yourself that you're anything but that is self-delusion. Thank God that he came to you, the island of misfit toys. Don't live life trying to claim that you're not a misfit. He didn't come for the non-misfits. He couldn't have been clearer about that. He says, I come for the misfits. This is the reason that I put on flesh and walked among you, so that the misfits might know that they have hope in a Savior that is Jesus Christ. There is nobody that does not belong to God's redeemed misfits. He doesn't mean that we're all going to be under one roof and then splinter into groups based on affinity and life stage as soon as we engage together under that roof. I mean, I'm not even just talking about gathering based on your sin. Might kill a couple sacred cows here. Um, if you only hang out with people that are your own age, the Bible calls that idiocy. I want to be just as frank on that as possible. Go and read 1 Kings if the only people you hang out with are the people in your age and income bracket. Solomon did that, and it tore the kingdom in half. He was offered, hey, would you like a wide berth of wisdom? filled with younger people and older people and be able to get counsel from them. And he says, no, I'm a 20-something and I know everything that there is to do and know, like every 20-something. So therefore, just give me a bunch of 20-somethings because that'll work out well. Um, no, that doesn't, that doesn't work out well. But gosh, same message to older saints. If all you do is sit around and talk about the over-entitled millennials and have never spent time with one, shame on you. You're living the same folly that was talked about in First Kings. These younger people, how are they supposed to know? If you're, the only reason you know is because somebody older and wiser spent time with you when you were younger and formative. So if you're not doing the same, how do you expect them to know? And why on earth would you ever impugn them for not knowing if you haven't taken the time to invest? We're not supposed to just splinter into different affinity groups. That's what the first six verses are all about. That that's not where our sense of belonging derives. Our sense of belonging doesn't come from just, hey, they share the same struggle, they share the same hobby, they share the same thing that they get excited about. So therefore, there might be 200 people here, but these eight, they're the ones that get it. You need each other. 
to grow as you're called to grow. If that's where the church was supposed to be, then why would God exhort the people to walk in both liberty and grace while at the same time being mindful of those who are different than you? That's what those first six verses are about. I wouldn't need liberty and grace and mindfulness if I was able to say, God, take away from me everybody that I need liberty, grace, or mindfulness and surround me with only four people who will say yes to everything that I say so that I might be president someday. Um, so, like, why would you need that? Why would, what would actually take you to give of self and be able to say, I'm not going to just pursue what makes things easy for me, but I might even mute that for the sake of loving somebody else. And then in verse 6, Paul does something else that's brilliant. In the previous verses, he showed that we don't belong to anything else based on affinity, human commonality. Now in verse 7, he's going to show that we don't belong to ourselves either. Look at verse 7 with me. It says, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. Often I'll encourage you guys to go back in time and envision what it was like being boots on the ground when a section of Scripture was written so that you could get the impact of what the biblical author was trying to get at. But this is one of the few passages where I think it might be more poignant now than when it was actually written. I don't know if people in a communal context that the Bible was written to would be able to understand just how radically individualistic people of today are. Are. So being told, don't live for yourself, man, is that poignant in an autonomous, individualistic society that holds the individuality of the person above communal living. The predominant view of today is of one belonging to self. Most couples I've ever sat with who are ready to just say, okay, we're done, we're pulling the plug on this marriage, it's time to move on, I need to get a divorce. The next statement out of their mouth is, I got to do what makes me happy. Yeah. Consumerism is driven by what? I don't need it, but I have to have it because I got to do what makes me happy. Question with everybody doing what makes them happy, why does every statistic that you'll ever read show you that people are less happy right now than they've ever been? Could it be that we were never made to live for ourselves? If we truly don't belong to ourselves, then we'll demonstrate that by consciously being able to say no to ourselves so that we could say yes to God. Let me be real with you. If I asked you, who do you belong to? Would your spending habits reflect that that's the truth? Like if you said, oh man, I'm not on my own but I belong to God. But every penny that comes in, I'm going to spend 110% of it on me. But then I'm going to come and say, hey, pastor, why is my heart cold to the things of God? Well, because you belong to yourself. Where do the majority of your thoughts go to throughout the day? A big one in our culture, would your kids see you as somebody who belongs first to God? Listen, folks, I'm going to come back to this in the end here in a few minutes when I wrap up, but you do yourself and your kids no favor by belonging to your kids. 
When people ask me to think like a missionary and to think of what the prevailing sin is in ocean and tongue, like we meet with different missionaries around the world and we say, what are the cultural missionaries that you need to preach the gospel into in your area? The biggest one that I always come back to first is we live in an area where people are deceived enough to think that they belong to their children and the whims of their children. Hey, I know that I have no time and I constantly tell you I have no time, but my kid needs to be in the eighth little league because seven wasn't enough. Give me a break. Give me a break. It's time. If every time you come to a crossroads, the first way that you tackle it is, well, what works best for me in this situation? Then it's a really an evidence that you belong to another, but that other is you. God's job is not to see where you want to go and then jump in for the ride so that he could bestow blessings upon you as you live out your will on the destination that you're headed for. God's call in your life is not so that you could say, I love me and I have a wonderful plan for my life. Now, God, could you be my co-pilot? I'll even put a bumper sticker on that says that you are. If we truly belong to God, then it should come up in practical decision. That was the point of the previous six verses. Paul broke it down as simply as eat and drink, as simply as the things that you put on your mouth. That Christian liberty is not just to say, you know what, I can. Just because you can doesn't mean the same as I should. That's why Paul started his great section on love with all things are lawful, but that doesn't mean that all things are profitable. Someone who is not their own is not going to look at how to maximize what they can get for themselves out of every situation before responding. They're going to look at it a grid as I am not my own. When is the last time that you consciously decided to say no to something that your flesh desired for the sake of belonging to one another. And one thing I want to be careful of is this, this text is not preaching asceticism. Asceticism is this idea where you essentially just teach your flesh to say no to everything that would engage your flesh. One of the things that's become very popular, there's even like uh, shows on, um, uh, what's that station that chicks watch that dudes never watch? Um, uh, there's a show called Minimalism on that station. How you can be happy living a minimalistic lifestyle. Can you be happy living a minimalistic lifestyle? Sure. By having less debt, by having less stuff to dictate your actions, that you're not spending all of your time trying to manage your stuff, you're living within your means, you're eating based on when you're hungry, not just if you're bored, then I'm going to solve this boredom by stuffing another Twinkie in my face, I'm not falling into the rut that you need the latest new shiny to keep up with the people around you those things can be helpful but no amount of minimalism will ever help you find meaning because they're not enough without verses 8 and 9 and this is where we'll wrap up look with me at these verses it says for if we live we live to the Lord and if we die we die to the Lord so then whether we live or whether we die or whether uh, we are the Lord's for to this end Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. So after showing that we don't belong to others and we don't belong to ourselves, 
Paul masterfully shows that we belong to God. What does that mean? Turn over a couple pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Same sentiment as this passage, but I love the way that it's worded in verses 19 and 20. He says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We belong to God. I find it really interesting that if you go back to Romans 14 and you look at verse 11, that he quotes Isaiah 45:23, which is also the same passage that he quotes in Philippians chapter 2, the great passage about Christ humbling himself and emptying himself on, for your benefit. He says, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he's God. So he uses Philippians 2 to show that even though Jesus is God, even though Jesus was the only one to ever be born on this earth that had the right to belong solely to himself, that he still didn't seek after self. Or as Philippians states it, even though he is God, he did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped. But he humbled himself and became a servant. And in doing so, he gave himself fully over to the will of the Father. If Jesus came here as God, very God, and lived with a sense of, I am not my own, but I belong to God, how much more does that apply to us? So what does it mean to belong to God? It's going back to our covenantal relationship. This whole idea of belonging just means that we were created to be in covenant relationship with him. We're bonded with him forever. This is what we celebrate when we come to the Lord's table, that he has made a new covenant. He's taken away the tablet of stone that was written on human hearts, and he replaced it with a heart of flesh so that he could say, you are not some list of doing and don'ts. You are my child. And you are in relationship with me forever. It's also pointing out the Imago Dei. He's not saying this to horses and pigs and caterpillars because they were not image bearers of the divine God, but by you have intrinsic value. This is why we fight for the right to life. This is why we believe that life starts at inception. This is why we value such things because there's no one else. There's no other being that's been created in the image of God. So by being an image bearer, you are indwelled with an inherent sense of dignity. You belong to him. And God, now what sanctification is, is God actively working in you, restoring the Imago Dei. He's restoring the image of God within you, turning you back into an image bearer for his glory. God is using us as agents of restoration and reconciliation as he works in you to be an image bearer to a world who needs to see the image of the invisible God. There is no greater example of this than Jesus Christ in the garden before going to the cross. He said, God, if you're willing, let this cup pass from me. You know what that's saying? God, if I belong to myself, I'd much rather not have to taste of this cup. But not as I will, for I don't live to myself, Lord. And I'm also willing to do 
what's not beneficial for me for the sake that others might prosper, but as you will, is the way he finishes that prayer. God, ultimately, I belong to you. So do with me what you will, Lord. It's not always easy. It's a hard line to walk. I don't live for others, but the first six verses tell me to be conscious of others. I don't live for myself, but I belong to God. Anywhere along the place of that syllogism, it can go off the rails. That's why the heater, the writer of Hebrews uses the example of the garden to encourage us to remember our identity and remember who you live for. He says, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood against sin, have you? Therefore, set your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He gives you the perfect example of him who knew that he did not live to himself or belong to himself, but he belonged to God. So some practical ways to see if your identity is truly rooted in who we belong to. Look at your relationships. Are your relationships based on God's calling for your life to be a faithful disciple, disciple maker, and missionary? Or are they based on affinity, common life stage, and common interest? Where does your heart most often belong? Tangibly, when have you consciously made a decision to not belong to yourself, to go against the grain of it feels goodism to be able to belong to another? Have you tried to find meaning in belonging to others? Friends, that will fall apart quickly, doesn't it? Most church hurt that I see, that people, I'm not talking about just hurt feelings, I'm talking about the hurt that defines you, that people just refuse to get past. You have to wonder, did you get disappointed when you found out that you didn't belong to others, or you thought you belonged to others and then the others disappointed you? rather than setting your rocks on the one who is higher than I, who will never, ever disappoint. Can you think of ways that you denied yourself in order to live to belonging to others? Do you demonstrate it to your kids? Have we committed to not grow a generation of Veruca Salts who, I want a goose that lays golden eggs for Easter. Just no. Just stop. No. Is that word in your vocabulary when you talk to your precious little perfect angels? And let's end where we began. What is our only hope in this life and the next? That we are not our own. We belong to God. So where is your hope? Is it in a good job? Is it in a good union that will make sure that you don't get fired if you run your mouth? Is it in a family of origin? Is it in your relationships? That even Jesus' relationships were woefully disappointing, weren't they? Our only hope in this life and the next is that we are not our own, we belong to God, and we're going to taste of that as we go to communion. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price. We celebrate that price right now. In the name of Jesus, amen.